0: very pleased to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Rory Johnston, founder of CommodityContext.com. Rory has been tracking everything in the oil market, which we want to talk about very badly. Rory, great to have you back. How have you been? Thanks so much for having me,
1: Jack. I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm tired. This market is very exhausting. But other than that, I think I'm doing really well. What about this market is exhausting, Rory. So, I think the thing that's exhausting about this market is that basically, since kind of middle of last year, uh, where we had a very kind of directional market, obviously, you know, uber bullish, you know, Russia on the brink, everything else. Since that point, on my bit, on my kind of calculations and my supply demand balance globally, we did tip into kind of deficits. Uh, but we've kind of just been kind of bouncing back and forth between you know supply and demand deficits and surpluses more or less for the past you know half year or so. And I think this is justified. I, I I think the prices we're seeing generally are are more or less justified. But I think the big jumps up and down between that range trade we've seen for the past six months have been just kind of kind of capricious and speculative driven rather than anything fundamental. And I think it's because there isn't actually a fundamental directional narrative. That is pulling us along right now. And I think, but given the complexity of the market and given, you know, particularly through COVID, the kind of um, proliferation of a bunch of different data that a bunch of people can now see, uh, there's more than ample data to confirm, or or at least to lend credence to bullish or bearish cases. Uh, So I just think that in this this environment, everyone's just getting frustrated and, and bulls and bears are just getting really, really loud about it. I approach it from like, what can we say isn't happening rather than what can we say is happening? Because I think there's a lot of narratives out there and I just try and kind of dispel some of those.
0: So yeah, I want to get into the narratives that you wanted to dispel, but first I'll just say, the first time you came on Forward Guidance was in September of last year when WTI crude oil, uh, around 80 bucks, maybe a little bit less than that, you said that oil uh, will trade flat to down until Biden backs down and China reopens. That was my paraphrasing yeah. of, of your words. Since then, oil has traded flat to down. Interestingly, the super bearish case uh, hasn't occurred either. It's been a, a moderately cautious bearish view is what has uh that, that case has aged the best because we've traded down uh, to as low as mid-60s on WTI, although now over the past you know, week or so, we're uh, back over six, 73. So as you say, it's been very grinding low, grinding high, giving the bears and the bulls lots of hope for rallies that never really materialize or crashes that you know uh, rebound. And, and so it's been very flat. So Biden has backed down because the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, I think, is no longer being drawn upon. And China has reopened. Uh, so it, will oil stop trading flat to down?
1: Yeah, so I, I, if before, I think, I think you're accurate in characterizing my view as kind of like cautiously bearish. And I think at this stage, I would consider myself at least relative to the prices of a week or two ago, uh, cautiously bullish. And I think as of right now, we're trading just below $80 Brent. We're at 79.20 on my screen right now. We've been in this kind of range trade market essentially since the beginning of December. Uh, you know, the first kind of phase of the range trade was uh, on a Brent basis, high 70s to high 80s, we basically bounced back and forth in that range kind of three or four times. Then you got the big dump in March on the mini banking crisis and the you know, started by Silicon Valley Bank. Um, that kind of began a, a, a kind of a, a lurch downwards that put us in this, you know, a new range, which is essentially kind of, you know, high 60s to high 70s. And I think, what I expect for the second half of this year is that we at least get back into that higher range. I don't think it's it's kind of guaranteed by any means that we get back to you know mid to high 90s, let alone triple digits. I think that could happen uh, if kind of a perfect constellation of events kind of uh, take form, take shape. But I think it's also important to kind of really you know, define what we mean by bullish and bearish in this context, because on my timeline on Twitter, uh, you know, there's still plenty of people who seem to be thinking that $150 crude is around the corner. I think that fundamental story has changed so dramatically from, you know, last April, May, June. And I think it's important to kind of talk about why, I think, why at the time I was actually very bullish uh, and how that kind of fell apart, Um And I think the important thing is for that kind of really hyper bullish market to maintain itself, you need to maintain really heavy pressure on balances, on prices, kind of, um, you know, demand needs to keep marching ahead so that supply can never really catch up. When demand fell back, like we saw, you know, basically from May or June of last year through more or less to today. And 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 I'm going to dwell on this in a second again, but um, the difference between levels and growth, because I think it's another important differentiation. But we've seen demand weakness since that period, and supply has kind of jumped ahead. So we really have, you you know, the bullish case has has kind of pulled back its press. And I don't think that that, you know, now we have so much additional supply slack to work through that I just don't see it, you know, unless we get some kind of. Completely unforeseen, you know, hyper bullish macro backdrop, and everything accelerates together. I just don't see that coming together. Uh, right. Yeah, so sorry. on the
0: supply side, um, the one easy thing that I can probably predict on the supply side is that everyone thought Russian barrels of oil would uh, leave the market, not not get out. That hasn't happened at all. They've produced a lot of oil and, and sold it to other countries. Um, so that's on the supply side, and then there, you know, hundreds of other. You know, in, in in the weeds, things that that you, you follow on the demand side. How do you track demand? Because it's pretty when you when you say demand filtered off in June. Is that just the price of oil went to one hundred twenty dollars, and so uh, it it killed demand because everything was too expensive? How do you measure that? Yeah, so I think that's I think that's generally right. I think two things happened. One,
1: there was kind of a generalized macro slowdown, and as I've seen it, you know, the global economy has essentially been on this two track. Um, kind of path over the past year, and that is that on the goods and industrial side has been very weak. Uh, you know, tying it directly to oil, this manifests in very weak diesel demand and very weak NAFTA demand, as linked to like the petrochemicals industry and again plastics manufacturing, all this stuff. Whereas on the services and consumer side, fuels like gasoline and jet fuel have re- have been performing much better. And for the majority of the COVID period, diesel was the fuel that really pulled us out of the dregs of the demand collapse. It was, you know, even if everyone was staying home, everyone was ordering on Amazon and your truck was bringing it to you and all this stuff. So, and, and and plastics were doing really well because everyone was consuming goods. And we had this whole discussion at the time about this massive, like the, the big press on the inflationary pressure was this massive at the time, unforeseen, uh, although in hindsight seemingly very obvious, kind of pivot away from you know getting your haircut and going on vacation, services spending all the way to goods, and you know everyone readed their homes and bought a lot of stuff, and that essentially we always knew that was going to unwind. And I think again in hindsight it seems obvious that it did, but again I think it caught everyone, including myself, off guard at, the, at that moment. Um, the other thing, the other important thing I want to talk about here for a second is when we're talking about demand sluggishness or demand weakness. Bulls will often point to say, like, look, we're basically back at pre-COVID levels. How can demand be weak? But I think that is really an exceptionally low bar because, well, we're four years on now from 2019. And historically, we would have expected oil demand to be growing at a million, million and a half barrels a day. So we should be substantially higher than pre-COVID levels. And I think uh, even myself, I think everyone everyone got really used to thinking in levels as we were tracking the recovery of, of both supply and demand. Uh, but what we kind of got out of the habit of is tracking growth. And I think on that basis, growth in demand slowed markedly from the middle of last year through today. And when you look historically at, at virtually all economic slowdowns, except for the most acute crises like the 08 financial crisis and COVID itself... You never really saw outright contraction of oil demand. What you saw was essentially a flatlining. And that's in many ways what we've seen essentially over the past year. Now, going forward, I would expect, barring kind of a hard landing, I think that you would expect that to kind of reaccelerate. But the big challenge is is that given the restructuring of the global economy and consumer behavior and Work from home. I'm, I'm working from home right now. You know, people don't fly as much anymore. Um, all of that, and particularly for business, all of that makes the you know the look forward demand expectations much trickier to kind of pin down because you know prior to prior to COVID, you know that expectation and that kind of hard link between economic growth um, and demand growth was very very hard linked. The other thing that really was int- that's really interesting, and again, kind of presses that point about how if you let up on the pressure on demand, kind of it gets away from you, is part of COVID. The, the the most kind of reliably, you know, robust source of on a percentage basis on the product side for growth was jet fuel, uh, and that was despite the fact that the aviation industry also was making year on year on year really impressive gains on the efficiency side. Um, but you didn't really notice it because, let's say, efficiency was growing by four or five percent, but activity levels were growing by seven or eight percent. So you never really noticed it, and jet fuel demand just kept going—you know, two, three, four percent higher year on year. But when we collapsed in COVID, the planes didn't stop being delivered, so the fleet continued to grow its uh, and increase its efficiency. So now, not only do you need to re- reach pre-COVID flight activity levels, which we're more or less at right now. You actually need to get well beyond them and maintain a constant state of growth because now we have all of these efficiency gains to work through. So even if we're back at pre-COVID activity, you know, flight activity levels, we're definitely not
0: yet back at, you know, pre-COVID jet fuel demand levels. We're probably still 10% below that level. So yeah when you talk about strength in demand for on the product side on the uh, industrial side stuff like naphtha versus on the consumer side stuff like jet fuel and gasoline, I imagine you're referring to the crack spread, which is just the the price of the refined commodity let's say naphtha relative to the you know, rock barrel of crude oil uh, how much when it comes to jet fuel uh, how much of this is actually bad news, because it sounds like, okay, the economy managed to recover, and the US economy, the global economy just got more efficient, and it needs less oil per unit of economic growth, uh, as you see in in the jet fuel. So for everyone except for the oil bulls, it sounds like it's a good story, although bad for the oil bulls.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that gets us to the kind of where we are today. and, And this question of like, why are we leaping higher right now, if the backdrop is kind of this generally kind of cautiously bearish environment? And I think that's when you have to turn to OPEC plus, and specifically Saudi Arabia. So the thing that has changed over the past, call it, two, three months, is that OPEC plus has continually cut production again and again and again. We've had three major cuts now uh, back effective November 2022. Uh, We had another cut at effective uh, May that was announced at the beginning of April. And then we had the unilateral cut from Saudi uh, that took effect in July. I think the other thing to dwell on here for a second is that it's really weird to track OPEC now versus pre-COVID norm and that's because historically you would just basically have OPEC quotas you would have OPEC target production you know x cut from you know uh you know a bunch of countries relatively equivalently across the board so but now you have you know official OPEC Targets and quotas, like the ones that we saw back at the end of 2022 that got cut. I called that a paper cut because it was mostly the quotas rather than actual effective production that was being reduced. And I think, despite a headline paper cut of kind of 2 million barrels a day, the actual cut to production was something like 300,000 barrels a day. It was like very, very weak. It was offset by a bunch of increases and everything else. Um, so we have the official quotas and targets. Then uh, in, in April, we had this voluntary production cut so now we have already a two-track market a two-track OPEC kind of target you know how do you enforce voluntary cuts like can you enforce voluntary cuts it seems kind of silly and then at the beginning of you know um, when at the beginning of May when um, you announced uh, or sorry beginning of June when the Saudis announced that they were going to unilaterally cut production, Uh, effective July. Well, there you have a third type of cut. You have a unilateral voluntary cut that only applies to Saudi. And uh, and the most recent one, when Saudi Arabia announced that they were rolling forward uh, that temporary unilateral cut from July into August, then you also had Russia come out and announce that, oh, yeah, we're doing a complementary cut (laughs) to exports. So, and this is, you know, now you have all of these moving variables, and it makes it very, very hard to track and kind of keep compliance and keep kind of um, effective control of what OPEC is doing. And I think that narrative is really getting muddled in the market.
0: Walk us through the numbers. So how many barrels of oil per day does Saudi Arabia currently produce? And you know, you, you've got some fantastic charts uh, on this piece uh, called Royal Oil from commodity context, <laughs> where you, you track it over the past 15 years. And so it was for a while, well above 9 million barrels per day. Uh, yeah, I mean, where is it now? And how significant do you think this cut is? And can you just talk us through, you know, how many barrels of oil and, and how significant you think that will be? So the the thing that Saudi Arabia is really good at doing is controlling its oil production. Um, Every,
1: you know, versus all other members of OPEC, it's kind of Saudi is the goat, uh, you know, as it applies to both kind of unilateral controlling the message and and unilaterally controlling its production. So you're right. um, Basically, the high watermark for Saudi production very recently was a quota of about a million, sorry, 11 million barrels a day. Then they cut by 500 at the end of 2022. They cut by another 500 at the beginning of April. And then they cut by a million barrels a day unilaterally uh, at the beginning of June, effective July. So now, you know, net, net, they've cut 2 million barrels. And we don't have the latest official Saudi estimates for July yet. Uh, But my expectation is, and if you look at the chart at the top of Royal Oil, they're very, very tight to their quotas. Um, So my expectation is that, yeah, Saudi has cut 2 million barrels a day of functional Production capacity from the market, and actual, actually, the amount of uh, the amount of incremental loss of supply from the market relative to the end of 2022 is actually even larger than two million barrels a day. Because through the summer is also the high, you know, the high water mark for Saudi domestic consumption of oil for direct burn for its own kind of air conditioning demand needs. Mainly, again, we are talking about a desert kingdom, uh, so you know, that that probably means that we're down 2.3 plus million barrels a day of, of Saudi oil. And I think what's interesting is that Saudi really is holding this market together right now. And I would say the, the reason that we're seeing prices go higher is more or less entirely Saudi's doing. Um, that is, I think, a testament to the control of their industry and their kind of leadership of this market. But at the same time, we're putting a lot of our eggs in one producer basket. And if you look historically. Uh, and I wrote about this in in the Royal Oil piece as well, historically, Saudi Arabia has not liked to unilaterally cut production. Um, you know, if you go way back, and this has been a policy and a stance by Riyadh for 40 years now, if you go back to the mid 80s, uh, the last time Saudi Arabia tried to like unilaterally swing production in the market. And you have seen statements from the Saudis today. They're like, we're not being a swing producer. <laughs> like, We're not doing that. But like, it kind of like, how long do you unilaterally swing production until you're acting like a swing producer is my question. But back in so, the 80s- sorry, this, It
0: was only Saudi Arabia who did this cut, no one else from OPEC? Uh,
1: the latest 1 million barrel a day cut, the one that was announced uh, effective uh, for July. Yeah, it's only Saudi, no other members participated.
0: Got it. And- Other members of OPEC have some kind of a spotty record. that they'll say they'll cut by a few hundred thousand barrels, but are they actually cutting? Who knows? But you're saying Saudi Arabia, when they cut, they actually cut. They're good for it. Uh, There are a couple other members within
1: OPEC that are actually really good at cutting production and following the line. But again, these are more or less Saudi's core allies in the Gulf region. We're talking, you know, Kuwait, UAE, et cetera. Even Iraq has honestly done a pretty good job through most of uh, this OPEC plus deal. Uh, But yeah, Saudi is, you know, they're good for it. They're obviously the biggest swinger in this kind of market. But if we go back to the reason back in, you know, back 40 years to the mid 80s, um, the reason that the Saudis don't like to unilaterally cut production is because that's exactly what they did during that period. Essentially, you had the price spikes of the early 70s, and then the late 70s into the early 80s. And those price spikes did what prices do? They they incentivized new production to come to the market. Most notably at the time was the North Sea boom. So you had millions and millions of barrels of growth from the North Sea. It was a huge deal at the time. It's funny looking back now because it's you know the North Sea is well past its prime today. But at the time it was you know it was the spring chicken. It was it was really uh, what was driving supply growth, and the Saudis kept cutting back production essentially to balance the market and essentially make way for this uh, North Sea crude until at one point during the summer of 1985 Saudi Arabia was producing less by itself than the British portion of the North Sea and that's when the king was like this is outrageous open the taps let the oil go and it was actually that 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 kind of bounce back of Saudi production that essentially prompted the bear market of the mid to late 80s into the early 90s i think that is a really worrying historical precedent for today and that's why i'm so concerned with all of this unilateral dependence on saudi action is again they can turn on a dime and i think at this stage they have you know they have been bullish and they have all of their actions today have been in you know price supportive i think for very obvious reasons they have a lot of cash flow needs they're buying a lot of you know major league golf and and you know athletes all around the world and they're building you know 500 billion dollar mega cities in the middle of the desert from nothing and all of this they they have a lot of spending requirements and now they're actually trying to support prices but I think the concern is you know how long are they going to do that if if prices don't really uh, increase and I think some of your guests a couple of weeks ago talked about like you know are they out of bullets I think I don't know if they're fully out of bullets yet obviously they're still producing nine million barrels a day they can have nine more million barrel a day cuts. But it's unlikely that they're going to use those. And I think, you know, maybe we could get one more cut. uh, But I don't think that they'd be very happy about it. Uh, And I also think that, you know, even now, you know, this million barrel a day unilateral cut, they have basically said it was only effective for July. And now they've rolled it forward to August, and they're keeping the market guessing. And I think this is this big question is like, what are they going to do?
0: And earlier you referenced I think an interview uh, I did with Michael Cow and Alexander Stayhill on the oil yep. market. and they, I think particularly uh, Alexander, made the case that anytime there's an OPEC cut in production, yes, it may remove some barrels from the market, but it just means that the next time the price of oil spikes, there's more production to go online. So it really restrains a, a future rise. So the price of oil could go to ninety, but it's not going back to one hundred and twenty because as soon as it goes to ninety or hundred, uh, they're going. It's going back online. How much do you uh, agree with that argument? I, th- I think I think Alexander is right on that. I think that a big part
1: of what gave us those really really high and volatile prices of you know the first half of twenty twenty two were not were were that we were having, you know, inventories were plunging globally, shale was sluggish. You had a bunch of OPEC members that were struggling to keep up with their uh, quota commitments and increasing production back from the lows of COVID. Uh, And everyone was starting to talk about like, what is Saudi Arabia's ultimate production capacity? And all of these kind of, you know, concerns about, you know, how much can they really pump? That kind of environment definitely puts people on guard. And I think, you know, uh, I, had, I had a piece uh, talking about, um, you know, essentially like our prices disconnected from fundamentals. And I think, while well, while well, I think prices right now are more or less in line with what they should be, uh, at least barring you know you know further motion, um, at the time I actually think that the prices overcorrected to the upside at the beginning of 2022. And I think it was because of a lot of that concern and that you know super backwardation we saw was essentially people precautionary buying. And I think when you look at the academic literature, a lot of what uh, this is often described as, you know, this precautionary demand. And even at like even at the, you know, the Iranian revolution, you know, the 79 into 80 um, oil price spike, you know, look, people looking back have, have noted that it doesn't actually look like we were all that short of oil at that moment. It was that people were overwhelmingly kind of rapidly grabbing barrels because they were worried about, you know, uh, going for naught. I think that's also what happened, you know, last year. The one, one where I, one place I will quibble though, is I think that, while it doesn't, you know, while having all this excess spare capacity, I think does put some kind of, you know, does uh, provide a safety blanket or say, you know, some some kind of safety to the market. I do think I, I am generally suspicious that of uh, claims that the oil market will look through something. I don't think the oil market's particularly looking good at looking through anything. I think it's a very, very Kind of direct supply demand bar, you know, market. You know, if you're in deficit, you're going to kind of spike higher. If you're in surplus, you're going to go lower, especially on the the shape of the forward curve. I think that if Saudi Arabia does maintain these unilateral cuts, then yeah, I think that prices. I think they will force prices higher by forcing inventories lower. Um, the question is, how long are they going to do that? I view spare capacity in, or particularly OPEC spare capacity. Much through the same lens as I view the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, um, in that I don't think the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve should be viewed as inventory at all. I think it should be viewed as a a known, discrete volume of U.S. spare production capacity, and I think that is my view on this as well. With this, with the Saudis, is is sure we, it's not the same. You know, we don't know exactly how many barrels are in their tank, but. We know generally how much more they can produce um, and how much more they've demonstrated that they can produce. And I think that delta is important.
0: Sorry to interrupt. Wanted to let you know about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are going to be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 30% discount to a full three day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code Guidance30. That's Guidance30. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. How have you uh, viewed the Chinese reopening? Everyone says China's going to reopen and oil demand is going to spike so much higher. Uh, has that actually happened? No obviously
1: not <laughs> so I think that i was i was you know i I'll admit back you know at the end of last year, and I think in my interview with you, I kind of said like if you do have a gangbuster Chinese opening, yeah, that does really push us into a higher estate. The weird thing that's happening is that while clearly the Chinese economy is not that strong uh if it was that strong we wouldn't ha- we wouldn't see all of the recent kind of stimulative announcements from Beijing and kind of this. Uh, you know, pivot back to this old school construction infrastructure led stimulus to the Chinese economy. That is funny because the, so China doesn't, you know, the thing that people should understand is China doesn't actually publish demand numbers. A lot of places around the world publish demand numbers for a bunch of these different, you know, gasoline and diesel, et cetera. What we have in China are what we call apparent consumption or apparent demand. And that's essentially the difference between what they report as coming out of their refineries uh, so like, they, let's say you produce 100 barrels of gasoline, uh, you export 10 of them, and you import 20 of them. So you, your apparent demand is 110 barrels of gasoline in that case. Now, you can adjust for inventories, but those are also very sketchy in China. So what you're left with is this kind of quasi-directionally correct, but probably overstated in either direction, uh, estimate of Chinese consumption. Now, what we're seeing right now is apparent demand for Chinese fuels is booming, all-time high as of April, uh, you know, crazy high numbers, unrealistically high numbers. So what we likely have is a bunch of strategic stock building by Chinese authorities. Uh, And again, this is uh, the other thing I think is that I typically don't include Chinese inventories in my estimates of global inventories, because I view them much in the same way I don't include the SPR, the US SPR, because I think that both of those are not Um, normally functioning commercial inventories. They are driven by government edict. Um, And I think the reason that investors in the market looks at inventories is essentially as a reasonably unbiased kind of cumulative function of supply and demand. That when when you're in a deficit market, gradually inventories go lower and that kind of gives you a, a rough sense of how we've come and vice versa when we're in surplus. But obviously the SPR doesn't move unless the president says so. And I think in many cases, a lot of the movement we're seeing in Chinese inventories is also being driven by, you know, edicts, edicts from Beijing to say, like, look, these prices look pretty good. Let's fill up the tanks. And I think that precaution or that uh, discretionary demand, if you will, is really, you know, doing kind of like the Saudis. It's holding the market together. And I think that if we really did have a huge rally higher, let's say to 100 bucks, yeah, I would expect that the Chinese would stop building inventories as much. We don't know if they're going to drain them, but I doubt that they would continue buying them as as kind of
0: ferociously as they have been. So Chinese demand has been strong, but it's from government entities, not from consumers or businesses. Exactly. I would say, and again, I think it's, I wouldn't even
1: call it, I wouldn't even, it's not like, cons, it's not consumer uh, consumption. I would say it, it's Storage.
0: realized demand, which kind of compounds all those things together. Got it. And is this, is this, uh, the phrase you use, realized demand for uh, refined products or for crude oil? Because China is a, is a huge refiner of importing crude oil and then sometimes exporting the refined products.
1: Yeah, so I, 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 a lo- there are different views on how to do this. My view is is you take the Chinese estimates of refined product uh, output and then you, you, you calculate that based on the refined trade. Uh, so this is X crude oil, this is just refined products. Uh, but you can also kind of do the same thing for Crude, uh, but it's just a slightly different thing because you know consumers don't consume crude; they consume refined products. So you you know both are important, but my for my calculations on
0: consumption or or apparent demand, I use the refined products. Got it. And yeah, what are the different refined products in China uh, looking looking like? I mean, is I guess jet fuel is pretty strong uh, on a relative basis because you know no one was flying in. July of 2022, and a lot more people. So you get the year over year increases are immense, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, Gasoline, I guess, are people driving? I don't know. And then what are the other refined products within China? Because we can't for sure say what
1: the real kind of underlying consumer and, and business demand in China is, we can kind of say that because again, on that apparent basis, all of those look like they're booming. And that seems deeply, deeply unlikely. Uh, given the fact that gasoline crack spreads are back above diesel. And again, these are this is the difference between uh, kind of a barrel of gasoline and a barrel of crude oil that would go into kind of refining and producing it. Um, so those crack spreads for gasoline and diesel are reasonably good, but diesel's way down from its highs. Uh, whereas, you know, NAFTA is doing really, really terribly. Jet fuel is kind of in and around where diesel is. But I would say if we were to use that to what I what I think, what my gut says, China is consuming. I think that gasoline is doing reasonably reasonably well. I think jet fuel is doing reasonably well. I don't think that diesels doing that great, uh, and I don't and I definitely don't think that NAFTA is doing that great. And I think when you think about why China consumes a lot of these fuels, particularly things like NAFTA, um, a lot of that is not just for its domestic market; it's for its export oriented market. So if you know countries around the world are consuming less stuff well, you need less plastic to produce less stuff. And I think that's generally what we're seeing kind of realized on the refined, cracked, on the refined basis. But this is, again, the, this difference between kind of these huge kind of apparent demand numbers in China and what we expect is really happening under the surface, I think gives you, just good to go back to my prior point about bulls and bears have lots of ammunition to claim that they're right in this market and that the prices will just eventually correct to their narrative. I think that's the emotionally exhausting part of this market is that everyone is getting more and more confident of their view. And we're more or less trading sideways for the past six months.
0: So just to to get your view, you are somewhat cautiously bullish, and you think, you know, 80s, maybe 90s, high 70s, somewhere in that range. But you know, the days of 120, 150 are, you know, people are dreaming if they think about that. Yeah. I mean, never say never in the oil market. Everything can always surprise you, but
1: I think- Dreams can come true. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I think the factors that kind of coalesced to that perfect storm of a panic market at the beginning of 2022, very few of those exist today. Uh, US shale, uh, the slowdown seems to always be around the corner. I do expect it to gradually slow, given the fact that we've seen Lower prices. We've seen uh, rigs falling off. We've seen frac spreads falling off. So those are the actual crews that are doing the like the actual completions and the and the, and the actual fracking itself. Um, but you know, so that could slow. But you know, beyond OPEC's constraint, you're still having growth from Guyana. You're still having growth from Canada. Mexico is actually surprisingly strong. Up up like 100, 150,000 barrels a day, mostly condensate. But these are still liquids in these global balances. Brazil, et cetera. So all of this, you know, there seems to be enough supply at this particular moment. If we did go back up to 110, let's say, well, I'd expect, I would expect maybe OPEC to begin easing back its constraints. But I think this is also this weird market that I think a lot of our prior held and prior and firmly held assumptions about how OPEC and
0: particularly Saudi Arabia interacts with the market are changing rapidly. You you referenced Guyana. I'm just looking through, I think it was Hess, uh, looking through their production numbers. I mean, there's explosion of production in Guyana, but I don't know how relevant that is to the global picture. Obviously, it's very relevant to to Hess and the oil companies that are making it. (laughs) Uh, So how big of a game changer? I mean, I I think the biggest oil reserve is actually Venezuela. But is Guyana, you know, is that going to be the next Saudi Arabia or not as significant? Well, definitely not a Saudi Arabia in terms of
1: overall volumes, but so Guyana basically produced zero oil historically until these discoveries from Hess and Exxon um, in the Strobook Basin offshore of Guyana. And again, this is actually a lot of the same fundamental, you know, geological structures that, you know, Venezuela has as well. So this is kind of, you know, it, the geology extends uh, out into the Gulf there. Um, so I do think, you know, so we're going to go from Guyana being producing zero oil to being likely the largest per capita producer on the planet, um, which is doesn't mean huge a lot. for Guyana. But we're basically going to hit probably a million barrels a day uh, by, let's say, 2027, 2028. But I think, again, if you're looking at growth, that's 200,000 barrels a day, give or take, year on year on year on year on year. And if you combine that with the growth in the US, if you combine that with all the rest, that's how we really, that's how the oil market balances is it's, you know, 200,000 barrels a day of growth is actually really impressive. For context, um, in the heyday of growth in the Canadian oil sands, basically call it from 2010 to 2019, just before COVID, you were averaging growth between two and 300,000 barrels a day. That's how fast Guyana is growing right now. And I think that is important for, for context because, yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot. It's 200,000 barrels a day in a, in a market of 100 million. That's, you know, that's what bulls will say. This is insignificant but the but the market doesn't clear on that basis it clears on the marginal basis so if you're growing by 20% each year of the current saudi cut yeah those those are meaningful volumes and i think all of that together is what will theoretically at this
0: particular moment kind of maintain balance in the market and what about american and north american so us as well as canada production a year ago, two years ago, you know, we heard this very seductive narrative that oil executives, you know, yes, in 2005, 2013, all they did is drill wells. They didn't care about making money, but they've changed. Rory, they're different people. Okay? They've learned their lesson. They've gone to you know, the, 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 the therapist, and they've, they're totally different. Okay? <laughs> um, they're going to be making money and uh, returning capital to shareholders. How has that narrative aged over the past year? Have there been producers who said, you know what, you know, with the price of oil going from 120 to 80, I'm actually going to scale back by production, or I'm not going to build all the new wells and complete and drill? Or has it been, oh, hey, we, we, we hired the engineers, let's do it? I mean, yeah. I mean, so if you
1: rewind to last year, the big narrative, and I think this is a lot of also what helped press prices higher, was this, you know, I always talking about it, they found religion, you know, this religion of free cash flow, um, and that they were going they're gonna continue kind of feeding back uh, kind of <clears throat> excuse me, uh, feeding back kind of dividends and stock buybacks to you know finally return all of this capital to investors after for the decade prior to COVID, essentially essentially spending and lighting on fire about half a trillion dollars of investor capital. So investors want to get paid. That is happening, and I think that you have seen gradually less incremental unprofitable growth now in the United States than you did back then but that doesn't mean that the US isn't growing it's still in many you know by all intents and purposes the largest source of incremental growth in the world year to date US production is up something like a million and a half barrels a day now a lot of that is natural gas liquids a lot of that you know is a bunch of other stuff but again that's how this market Balances, and we don't talk about you know the differentiation on the supply side. People are like, "Oh, it's not; it's NGLs." A lot of the demand growth has also been on NGLs because of plastics and everything else. So, I think that the U.S. will continue to be one of, if not likely, the largest source of incremental supply this year, next year, and the year after. But I think that you're likely going to be growing at like half the pace that you were pre-COVID. I think that's you know just to put in context for the decade prior to COVID. Basically, like two thirds of every- every incremental barrel produced globally was from the u s which is a level of kind of dominance in supply growth that has rarely been seen throughout the industry's history if ever
0: yeah it, it nearly tripled right from two thousand ten to to twenty nineteen it it you know went from five uh what five five million barrels a day to thirteen million right yeah,
1: and that's and so and that's just crude. You've actually seen on a on a total liquids basis, which will include things like natural gas liquids, which are the, are which rather than being produced in a refinery from an oil well, you're producing it in a natural gas fractionation facility uh, or processing facility, where you essentially extract the heavier hydrocarbons like you know ethane and propane and butane. Those actually are accounting for a huge amount of this growth. Uh, because again, the US is not just a massive oil producer, it's also a massive natural gas producer. So when you look at, when we're, when we're talking about, and this is where barrel accounting gets so fun, it's basically like accounting meets chemistry in the most in the best or worst possible way, depending on your disposition. Um, and so the US is producing like 13, you know, 12 and a half, 13 million barrels a day of crude, but it's producing upwards of 20 million barrels a day of total liquids. And I think that is, and when we're talking about the global market of 100 million barrels a day, it's actually that total liquids, not crude, which is closer to 80.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. So that's American supply. What about American demand? I think uh, Michael and Alex were telling me that really one of the few countries to actually outperform in terms of demand was the, the US. Is, is that true?
1: US growth is doing okay. Um, I, by my number, is actually year to date. It's actually down 100,000 barrels a day as of April. And so it's average year to date. Um, so it's, it's, I would say it's fine. <laughs> now, the US was never a major source of demand growth either. Again, a lot of OECD is not a major source of demand growth. Uh, we ex- you know, Most of the growth we're expecting is coming from China, India, rest of emerging Asia, et cetera. So the US is holding itself together, um, but it's not gangbusters. At the same time, that pattern I was talking about of you know, what is really strong in the United States? Gasoline and jet fuel. What isn't really strong in the United States? distillate, naphtha, fuel oil, things that are more associated with shipping and industry and goods, et cetera. So I think that same trend is playing out. Now, I think this big question of like this mac this bifurcated macro demand backdrop is, you know, which one Folds, like which side it becomes the dominant side? Do, do eventually the strength in consumer balance sheets and the strength in services spending, does that hold the market together long enough for the industrial goods side to really recuperate and come back to the fore? Because if it does, then the US will actually probably be in a net growth position because again, we're higher on gasoline, higher on jet fuel, lower on all those industrial fuels. So that would turn us back into a growth market. On the flip side, that those consumer and services gains are being held together by very you know continued robust job markets um, how long do employment how long does employment remain robust if the industrial and goods side is is suffering and i think it's this question of which side it's like a tug of war which side really begins to win out and i think at this particular moment most of the kind of macroeconomist leaning folks i follow seem to think that you know we're talking mild mild kind of weakness before an eventual resumption of prior activity uh, or prior growth i think in that in that kind of situation you know we're going to be happy that we had that consumer uh, support to date and then to, and then industrial side will come back if the other way then yeah i think that we're eventually going to see gasoline and jet fuel fall off
0: uh, and then we're going to be in a in a more bearish market right and in 2008 oil exploded higher as the us i think the world was in a recession right so oil can rally in a very late cycle way yeah and again i think this is this is also this view of you know demand
1: for oil doesn't typically contract in on like a on an absolute basis in a recession it did in in 08 or in the the great financial crisis but not in it was it was also a lagged effect so you can still have all of this pressure in the market and again a lot of people will say that like high oil prices and high fuel prices helped contribute to the to the kind of erosion of consumer spending and I everything believe else.
0: It. I mean yeah, looking at, I, at last year I think that you know consumer sentiment is just the inverse of the oil price and uh, to the extent that people were spending less money and you had you know consecutive uh, real growth shocks in the in the US at least I mean that's because the price of oil went to $120 I don't I don't know how you don't attach those two things and then to the extent that growth in the US outperformed expectations this year. I think it's the price of oil has gone down.
1: Yeah, well, and, and not only has the price of oil gone down, but generally we're also well past the peak of our, our refining crisis. And I think given last year, oil was in a crisis, no doubt, but the refining crisis was actually in many ways far, far worse that, you know, we had seen 120, $130 oil before. We had never seen 60, 70, $80 crack spreads for, for, for diesel and, you know, and, and a little bit less for gasoline. So that when we were seeing 130 bucks on the screen for WTI or for Brent, uh, we were paying more like 180, 190 dollar effective prices at the pump, uh, and that is obviously far worse. I remember the first—I remember the first time when I when I you know filled up uh, with those prices, and it was very it was jarring, <laughs> just how much it cost to fill up the family car, and no doubt that had not just an impact on fuel demand, but an impact through a kind of a contractionary fiscal stance, essentially. On the rest of consumer spending.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. What does demand look like in emerging markets, non-OECD type countries? I mean, India, other countries. So India is is growing.
1: Um, a lot of these other countries are, in fact, growing. But again, the growth is slower. Um, I actually just posted a, a a tweet on 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 Twitter um, just earlier before, before this interview. And what I did, and I, it was part of prep for this, very frankly, and I was trying to see like where is the growth coming from. And what you see is essentially, since the middle of last year, on a growth basis, and again, this is the the importance in differentiating between levels, which is how we kind of calculate our supply and demand balances, and growth, which is the trajectory of those kind of major factors, Um, outside of that weirdly kind of, you know, suspiciously strong bounce back in Chinese demand, the rest of global demand is still just kind of poking along kind of like 1%, kind of one, maybe maybe 2% growth in, in some areas. Um, China, I think that realized kind of call it apparent demand is definitely holding that market together. Now, I think that going forward, what we're going to expect is that, you know, supply growth is going to fall and likely contract given all of these Saudi and OPEC cuts. And, you know, presumably that will balance the market, bring prices higher. The question is, where does demand go? Because they're not going to hold back supply forever. And again, other supply sources continue to grow. So it becomes this question of like, if if demand can't grow faster than we're seeing right now, then the oil market the oil bulls are going to be in trouble because you know everything depends. You know, supply can't ever be extracted from the context of demand. And if people aren't demanding, it doesn't matter how low supply is or how slow supply is growing. And I think again, this kind of we have these major unknown questions. We still don't know. What, you know, for a long time during COVID, people talked about how no one's ever going to fly again, no one's going to travel. That obviously didn't happen, but you know, we're back. We're you know, we're trending. We're back around pre-COVID high levels of air traffic activity, but we're not you know, shooting past it. Uh, whereas a lot of people had assumed that there was this massive pent-up demand of everyone that had been cooped up in their homes, particularly in China. That you know you're going to get out the door and you're going to go rip it, right? And I think this is that's just not
0: happening. I learned from your site, Commodity Contacts, reading today that domestic U.S. Uh, revenue per, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is, uh, is higher. Miles, yeah. Thank you. It's higher now than in 2019. Yeah. Uh, internationally, it's just below 2019 for for globally. I actually spoke recently with a expert in the airline industry, and uh, he said, you know. America to Europe is is going gangbusters. Uh, the exact phrase that, that he used. It's uh, <laughs> China to the rest of the world is that's where there's a lot of uh, lags, and particularly China to the U.S. Although that was never a, a big part. Jet fuel demand could continue to grow. I mean, reading the you know Chinese state-affiliated media, they are, are telling their citizens to fly to France. Never. I don't know if they're listening, but <laughs> <laughs> well, and and so far, I mean, I mean, the, the
1: recovery is there, right? I mean, we there are. Uh, bunch of websites now that kind of track. Um, I think uh, one really cool one is, I think it's called Radar Box. And you can kind of break down Chinese uh, domestic flight activity and Chinese international uh, transport activity. Uh, domestic, back to pre-COVID, above pre-COVID levels. International, not there. they're not there yet. But also, there's a lot more domestic Chinese travel than there is uh, international. So even if the international flights take more fuel, you know, net, net, domestic travel is more important. And we're actually mostly back to those levels. Again, I think this question is pre-COVID, there was such a strong trend in growth in air travel. And I think that's this big question. Do we get back to 7% annual gains in air traffic or do we kind of just plug along kind of mildly above last, you know, 2019 levels? That's a very, very different market, particularly because, you know, efficiency gains continue to march ahead. You know, not only do we have you know, accumulated three, four years of efficiency gains uh, when no one was flying and, sh- and, and planes continued to be delivered and, and the fleet continued to kind of refresh and and, and, efficiency, and seize efficiency gains. Um, but that's going to continue going forward as well. Um, you know, people, when people talk about like the reason that you have things like uh, the Boeing 737 MAX is because the larger engines are more efficient. They consume less fuel per mile. So that is a major trend in the industry and, and doesn't look like it's ever going to turn back. But we need really, really, really strong growth to actually overcome
0: that on a fuel-adjusted basis. And how strong does jet fuel demand, aviation demand, have to be for it to have a real impact on the price of the underlying barrel of crude? Because I think it was Alexander Stahill who was telling me it's not a large percentage of the barrel that actually is you know the pure enough and high-quality enough, high-octane, whatever, to be in that jet fuel. So if demand is very strong is it possible that the crack spread for jet fuel is just high the refining margin but people you know the price of crude is the price of crude it doesn't really matter
1: no I, I think that's I think that is right um, the uh, you know net net I think it's like eight nine percent of global demand let's say for nice round numbers ten yeah. um, so the difference is is that it's the or at least structurally it was always the fastest growing component so much like you're like much like we were talking about Guyana only producing 200,000 barrels a day of growth, it's again, all of these things have to come together. So when you're really building a global supply and demand balance model, all of these individual little things seem small and inconsequential until you add them all up. and You're like, wow. Um, and I think that's exactly the same with jet fuel. Even if it is smaller as a portion of the barrel, it was the fastest growing portion, essentially right next to ethane and propane and butane, which is essentially all these petrochemicals. So petrochemicals and flight were the two major sources of growth pre-COVID. Now flight is recovering, but petrochemicals are pretty dour. I think this is this question is like what goes going forward. What are the major sources of demand growth? And I think that's where these big questions are. And I think it's really really hard to take like a very firm confident stance on where oil is going to be in two three four years. Because the accumulated effect of those, we're talking, you know, a million, two million barrels a day of potential differences between are we going to resume the pre-COVID trend versus are we basically flat from here?
0: Tell us about the proposed Russian cuts, fears that Russian supply would fall off the market, uh, you know, drove the spectacular surge in oil prices. And the realization that they actually weren't taking it off the market is what caused it to sort of drip, drip lower uh, last year. Uh how seriously are you, t- are you taking that they'll cut? How much are they saying that they're cut, you know, given that it is very uh, crucial to fund their war in Ukraine?
1: Yeah, I would consider myself a Russia skeptic, um, <laughs> just to just, you know, writ large, I think. So what we've seen to date is at the beginning, so obviously there, are, I like to say that, you know, Russia's main contribution to OPEC is gaslight, not crude. And I think that in this context is essentially, they have a lot of words, not a lot of action. Um, one- wait, 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 natural, industry, ga- natural gas, not crude? Sorry, I meant gaslighting. Gaslighting is basically like bamboozling with kind of like half-truths. Uh, got it, got it, okay, okay. <laughs> it was more of a play on words than a, than a petrochemical or a, or a hydrocarbon. I got you. But I think it's, so in this context, I mean, just to put us in perspective for the year, the main cuts we're tracking right now is that OPEC essentially said- uh, sorry, Russia essentially said that it's going to cut 500,000 barrels a day. I believe that. I believe they said that in March. And how um, many do
0: they produce? How many do they produce before the war? How many are they producing now?
1: Let's just say generally 10. Got I it. think, it, you know, it's, you know, um, slightly less now. Uh, you know, let's say nine. Uh, but that's, again, depending if you're including condensate or, you know, natural gas liquids, all these other things. So let's just say nice round number 10 roughly you know slightly smaller than saudi and the united states but definitely you know far and away the, the third largest depending on the calculation um, so essentially they're cutting they they claim to cut 500,000 now at the time it was already kind of a weird cut they were saying like oh this is because we're pushing back on the price caps and it's like is it or is it because you can't export or your fields are deteriorating or there's so much unknown right now and russia's stopped publishing official Statistics on this, so you kind of have to take them on their, you know, on the production side. You have to kind of take them on their word. But what we do know is we can see how much they're shipping out by tanker. There's a bunch of services I personally subscribe with Fortexa, um, but it, you know, these tanker trackers show that exports really haven't fallen, and in fact rose after those claimed cuts. Now the latest cut and what Saudi, or sorry, what the Russians said basically dovetailing with the latest Saudi announcement that they're extending the production cut, the unilateral cut into August. That meant one million barrel a day cut into August. The Russians said that they're going to cut exports by 500,000 barrels a day. So if you remember when I was talking earlier about the four different types of OPEC cuts we're tracking right now, this is the fourth one. Uh, What is an an export cut? Is it additional to the 500,000 barrels a day of production cuts? Or is it just confirming of those cuts? Because that's where everyone was pointing out, it kind of seems like you're lying. Um, I think this is this big question. I think that's, again, why I think, you know, Russia's specialty is gaslighting is because everyone can debate Russia. But until we really see those barrels drop off the market, it's, it's just words. Um, now, the Saudis seem to trust them at this stage. I think they have a strong incentive to trust them, uh, or at least kind of keep them within the larger umbrella of OPEC plus and keep everyone kind of happy and put on a good face. But I th- again, I think even in that um, in that uh, OPEC meeting at the beginning of June where Saudi announced this unilateral production cut, Ru- uh, the Russian uh, representative there basically took a couple questions briefly from domestic media and then left before the press conference. So it's like, they're not there. Now they're like, oh yeah, Russia's playing game. It's a good sport. But it's, it doesn't seem to be really cutting. So now that they have explicitly said they're going to cut exports by 500,000 barrels a day, I believe it should be harder for them to wiggle out of that commitment. But again, I think that remains to be seen. They still have some pipeline exports that we don't have full visibility on. So they could easily claim, we cut the pipeline exports and no one would really be the wiser. And I think this is, again, the challenge that given how much Russia has tugged the market around back and forth for the past year, I think the market's going to wait for fundamental kind of confirmable cuts before they're ever integrated into, into prices. I think Given last year, the bias was to, you know, bullishly bid up prices for worry about these losses, given where we've been over the past year and how prices have performed, I think at this stage, you know, it's, people have talked about it as a show me market, like show me the, show me the production cuts, show me the inventory declines. And until that, I'm not going to bid prices higher.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, Please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance 10. Thanks. And let's get back to the interview. And is it true that, Is there a ban on Europe and America buying Russian crude, and even if that ban is just oh, China and India buying it and then selling it to Europe and profiting the, the difference, and is that how does that ban tie in with the price cap, which was maybe at sixty five dollars? Which you know, actually, the WTI was pretty close to there, you know, a few, a few weeks ago. Tell us, tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so the so essentially how it's how it's constructed is Europe, United States, Canada, uh, UK, a couple others, um, essentially can't import any Russian petroleum or like crude oil or refined products at all. Um, the price cap was specifically around shipping and logistics. So if essentially like, you know, you can use Western uh, insurance and tankers and all this stuff, if the price of the loaded barrel or the price you're paying for a Russian barrel is below $60 a barrel. Uh, and that's And that's essentially why you've had these wider discounts and differentials for things like, Mediterranean and Baltic Urals crude that's going to, to India. So India has been obviously been making you know hay around this, that you know they're importing two million barrels a day or so of Russian crude oil, getting a great price for it. That's essentially how it, how it works. Now I was saying earlier that um, to someone else that it's kind of funny. So like, so right now with the differentials and with the price rallying we're seeing, we're getting really, really close to that cap. So what happens when we breach that cap for the effective uh, or, or, or yeah, effective price of a Euro's barrel is essentially you begin to tighten the egress or kind of transportation capacity um, effectively open to those barrels. So what that should do, theoretically, is all else equal, that should tighten the rest of the market even more, because you're going to have less barrels getting to market uh, through those kind of Western back channels than you would have before. Now, We've had a lot of time since all of this was put together, and you have seen additional shadow fleets and Russian-insured and Chinese and Indian-insured vessels and all the rest of this stuff that seem to likely soften this. So I don't think it's going to be a huge constraint. But again, that's theoretically where the constraint is. On the flip side, if you do see that happening, then you also begin to see larger pressure to discount those barrels to get it back below that cap, which then in turn puts additional Competitive downward pressure on other competing grades of of let's say uh, Indian Indian imports because they're like well we can bid down a euros barrel to fifty nine dollars uh, you know, you need to give us something or we won't buy your crude and I think that it's kind of this funny to and fro of the market right now and again I think both bulls and bears have something to point to and say look we're gonna lose you know they're gonna breach the cap and we're going to kind of lose a bunch of Russian barrels and the bears say ah wait what this will actually do is it's actually going to put downward pressure on like barrels of other crudes, you know, medium sour crudes like Urals. Uh, one of the things that we had heard last year, so last year, I'm in Canada, um, the, you know, the main Canadian export is Western Canadian Select, which is the largest stream of global heavy sour crude available to the market. Uh, we had massive differentials that opened up last year. Um, you know, looking at, my, looking at my chart right here uh, in Houston, uh, where, you know, if you're looking at, take away all of the, of the pipeline constraints and things that normally plague Canadian crudes, uh, in Houston, a barrel of WCS uh, really got down in value to something like a $20 differential under a, a similar barrel of light sweet. That's a huge discount. Um, whole bunch of things that drove that, you know, there was uh, issues in the fuel oil market and everything else. But one of the things that was constantly raised was competitive pressure from Urals barrels, kind of working its way through this sour market, that, that again put pressure on like barrels. So it's not going to have a huge; it, it'll likely have a bullish impact on WTI and Brent because those are light sweet barrels. But I don't; it, I think it's kind of less of an impact uh, upside on things like heavy sours.
0: Got it. And what are you seeing in the differentials? We talked about spreads between difference between refined products and the underlying barrels. But what about the differentials between different types of barrels? There's no such thing as a, you know, a, crude, a barrel of crude oil. There's WTI, WCS, all these other you know, urals. You mentioned some of the oddities you've observed. What, what else? I know you've been tracking.
1: Yeah, so that's actually uh, the topic that I'm working on right now for my next piece at commodity context um, is so crude, like you were just saying, is not a monolith. It has a whole variety of characteristics. It's essentially like chemical soup more or less, that has you know, hydrocarbons that can be refined into a bunch of different things and different yields and different refineries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the two biggest kind of classifications that, cha- that, that differ between different crude oils is essentially the gravity. It's called API gravity, or it's the density of oil. Uh, a higher API gravity number means it's lighter. So like WTI is a high, high gravity kind of, you know, low density crude. And then WCS is a very heavy crude that has a very, very low API gravity. And then similarly, typically heavier crudes have more sulfur and lighter crudes have less sulfur. And sulfur is bad because as we know now, you know, sulfur, if it's not extracted from crude, gives us things like acid rain. So, you know, all the EPA standards and global standards require removal of sulfur from crude and products. So that, again, increases the refining cost for those crudes, which decreases their relative value all else equal to the refiner. So, so
0: sour is almost always
1: bad for prices. Sour is, I would actually go as far as say sour should always be bad. Yeah. Um, you, you do have, um, you know, theoretically, you can have moments where like a medium could be more valuable to a refiner given, let's say, a higher middle distillate yield. So like diesel and jet fuel, then let's say a light crew, which is going to be more gasoline and kind of lighter hydrocarbons at the top end. But generally, it's very rare uh, in any situation that a, a pure heavy crude is going to be more value on a light to like basis compared to a light sweet. But you know that as I'm saying that, uh, that same differential uh, that I was quoting for WCS in Houston that was twenty dollars a barrel discount, uh, basically in Q4 of last year, is currently trading at. differential. So that's a huge, so like, while no matter what you're seeing happening with, you know, WTI and Brent prices over that period, obviously we went down and now we're back up all, you know, during that period on a relative basis, WCS has rallied $16 a barrel. So while light suites have essentially been trading, you know, flat to sideways, you know, know, flat to down to sideways, um, heavy barrels have actually rallied uh, basically from Q4 to date. Uh, I think that's, again, an important piece of context. Now, what we're seeing today is with these OPEC cuts. Uh, OPEC cuts are typically bullish for, um, for heavy crudes. Uh, it, it means all sequel, you're likely going to have a, a narrower differential. And that's because a producer like Saudi, and this was kind of talked about in the Royal Oil piece, produces a huge variety of different crudes. It has huge amounts of production, and it, it, you know, it has you know lighter grades and medium grades and heavier grades. If you told the market you were going to cut a million barrels of, of crude from the market, which ones are you going to which ones are you going to cut? You're going to cut the, the least valuable barrels to you. Uh, so what you're going to cut is those medium to heavy crudes, which reduces that supply in the market and tightens those differentials. And that's again what we're seeing today. Add to that the fact that we've seen a bunch of new refineries come online. These are the refineries that had been delayed from the past year or so that you know, in large part prompted those huge differ, you know, those huge crack spread blowouts that we saw last year, those are now coming online, and a lot of those process heavy, sour crudes. So that also is increasing the demand for those barrels. So right now, I mean, the the, the piece, the working title is, uh, heavy, heavy is heavy is the crude that wears the crown. And I think this is, you know, it's a really, really good time to be a heavy, sour producer on a relative basis, because even if, you know, you know uh, light sweets are flat, crude, you know, heavy crude is rallying.
0: Hmm, interesting. Tell us about the positioning not in the physical market, but in the paper market, people trading, uh, so, you know, speculative longs and shorts in the oil's futures market, WTI futures, Brent futures. Um, a, a pretty notable uh, washout of a large uh, hedge fund, which you know very long oil, which is you know down quite a lot. You know, I, w- I won't name the name, but people who can look it up, they could they could figure it out. Uh, how much is that representative of just the entire paper market, where everyone was just way too long? and uh, kind of got carried out by a, you know, a wave of oil. So
1: I was mentioning earlier that oil has been in this really tight and kind of um, insurmountably range bound market. And for the first half of the year, what we saw was essentially, well, I measure um, what I call net speculative position. So if you look at the commitments of traders report that are published by the CFTC and ICE, they give you a breakdown of what different classifications of paper market participants hold in these contracts. So futures and options in WTI and Brent. Um, there's a component called managed money, which is essentially a proxy for hedge funds and other money managers. That's what I track as, as what I call my spec position. Now, I adjust that for overall open interest in the market. So what's the net spec position as a percentage of total open interest? And that drop, depending on how you measure it, either to very recently, um, the latest data, the latest weekly data, Bounced back a little bit off that floor. But the prior week, we were at the lowest level, lowest reading since the opening salvo of COVID. And by some measures, was we actually the lowest level in a decade.
0: And are so, they just uh, short at all or actually just very not long, the least long they've ever been? So funds are generally long crude
1: uh, on a net basis. Uh, going back, I believe it's always long. Even during COVID, you know, it was very. It, because commercials have to be short because they produce oil, so they hedge. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you do, you know, there is this kind of long bias. But again, it's relative to what would normally be the case. And I typically treat this as a contrary indicator. When I first when I first joined the market ages ago, um, people talked about it as smart money, and that, you know, it was a good leading indicator of where the prices were going. And I have since kind of come to the decision that I think that is actually entirely opposite. Uh, and that when you think about speculators, they do not produce or consume oil. They're only in it for the marginal kind of price trajectory, right? So if you are, let's, let's say, again, using round numbers, let's say the normal position on a you know, year average basis is like 7 or 8% uh, net position as a share of total open interest. If you drop down to, say, 4 like which is roughly where we were two weeks ago, all else equal, it's less likely that you go shorter from there because, you know, people have an exaggerated short position. They're way shorter on the way less long than they were on the other side. On a mean reversion basis, your next likely move is going to be back towards that that long-term trend, which means the next incremental move is likely bullish. On the flip side, if you're really overextended on the long side, likely what will happen is that you kind of something happens and you trim those back and you kind of come back to norm. So, That's how I approach it. And essentially, you know, there was a there's a lot of talk that like it's entirely speculative, everything, you know, you know, there is no fundamentals in the market. It's only paper. I don't believe that. I think that essentially, if you want to view it through a kind of a a theoretical lens, um, I view there's like a a fair price or a kind of like a steady state price that is based on you know, more or less, more than anything else, essentially the inventory position of the world, which itself stands in as a cumulative represent, uh, as a representation of the cumulative supply and demand balances in the market. Um, the spec position essentially moves that around that level. And I think you, you see this in, in, uh, in, in FX all the time, that there's essentially a fair value, and then you kind of trade around that, and that's how people trade FX. And I think that's a similar way that, that I view it in the oil market. Now, given we are really, really short right now, I would say all else equal, we're probably, let's say, four or five bucks below what that fair value would represent. Um, But we're not, you know, 20 bucks below that fair value. So I think that, you know, at most, if we go from really, really short to really, really long, maybe that'll cause a really, really kind of sharp over a week or two, like a $10 rally in the price of oil. But then we're overextended. And the expectation was that we'd come back down. So I think that it's useful for understanding the week to week chop and kind of how the market interacts with things. Like if, for instance, they really, that position really, really plummeted uh, when you had the Silicon Valley bank in, uh, you know incident back in March. Um, and that is essentially what really took all of the gas out of oil at that point was that spec position dumping out. Now I expect, again, one more reason that I'm cautiously uh, bullish is that I expect that that position will normalize and will kind of gain a couple bucks there in addition to the overall market on a fundamental basis also beginning to kind of gradually grind higher as, and again, importantly, only because Saudi Arabia is withholding so much oil from the market right now.
0: Got it. So the speculative positioning in the market is somewhat supportive of prices to go higher because they're not short, but they're just the least long or they're very, very low levels of, of being long. So the only thing they can really do is, is add up. So it's kind of a, you know, fading the the so-called smart money, which uh, you say it's not the smart money, and I believe you because a lot of things in finance you say they're smart money, you know, such as the bond market, not doing too well recently. Okay, uh, final question about the technicals. Tell us about the shape of the curve. You talked about volumes for f- futures contracts. Uh, what about the, sh- the the shape of futures where contango? Uh, You know, spot prices of oil today or oil next month are lower in price than oil in one year. And backwardation is the opposite, where oil right now or oil in one month is more expensive than oil in one year. Uh, Contango sounds bullish, but paradoxically, I actually think it is backwardation that is typically more of a bullish sign. Uh, How has the shape of the curve changed since we spoke last? And what, if any, importance uh, do you you draw from it when trying to uh, think if the market is strong or or weak or or tight or, or not tight?
1: So, since last September when we spoke, uh, the curve has really, really flattened out, which means that there's far less backwardation in the market today than there was excuse me uh, than there was kind of back in September, and specifically way less backwardation than there was in the super backwardated period of let's say last April through June so all sequel that means we're in a much less tight market, which again, I think is confirmed by flat prices or the price that you see in your screen for oil. those came down in tandem, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, when you can, you can look at different pieces and different parts of the curve um, for crude right now, yeah, I think particularly important for sentiment is what I call the prompt spread, or essentially the difference between the first and the second month, which is going to be theoretically the most sensitive to changes in conditions in the market. Whereas I, I generally think right now that the longer the, the rest of the curve does remain backward, just much less so than it was. But I think that you know those spreads out there, typically what what i I expect from you know the spec participants when we're talking about the man- you know the managed money positioning they don't typically take an outright kind of flat position or or up or down. they'll typically trade a spread so they'll you know they'll go if they're going to go long they're going to long the front and short the back and vice versa so I think what you're i think what a lot of what you see on the curve is 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 positions kind of coming off and on, but at the front of the curve, which is the closest to the spot market, I believe that should be the most responsive to changes in actual physical conditions and that more or less exactly tracks what i've been seeing in my own fundamental kind of supply demand balance data which is we've been really close to balance kind of bouncing back and forth back and forth between prompt backwardation and prompt contango wti has been generally less uh it's been generally weaker so you've had more protracted periods of prompt contango uh but you know last week i i noted in my in my weekly note that um, you know, at the end of last week, we 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 hit the highest level uh, since uh, on a flat price basis since the beginning of May, uh, and uh, both the WTI and Brent curves re-entered full backwardation, so including the, the prompt spread for the first time since um, since since basically the beginning of May. So again, that was again fundamentally bullish, but not super bullish. I think it's you know we're until we see a real breakaway in those spreads kind of confirmed by all the rest of the indicators, I, I, I just don't expect that we're going you know the, the flat prices aren't going to race higher. I think the only way we're going to get those is if we finally start to see inventories decline and given the fact that US inventories are the most visible and the most kind of connected to the overall market, I think that those will continue to be the most important to the market. I, I have a bunch of different inventory indicators I track globally. But if you look at them in terms of a relationship with with prices, the US works more or less just as well as the OECD levels. If you look at it in a total commercial petroleum basis, I think one error a lot of people use is they include the SPR volumes in there, which, as we were discussing earlier, I don't think the market really cares about SPR volumes because they're not a reflection, not a cumulative reflection of of, uh, supply and demand conditions of the market. They are just a decision by... By the Biden administration.
0: So if you don't count SPR volumes, when the SPR volume is released, so it goes from a place where you're not counting it and it doesn't matter into the real market, that is ridiculously bearish, right?
1: Yes. I will again. I, I view it as I view the SPR as essentially a potential discretionary supply and demand. So if nothing is happening with the SPR, it's a non-factor in the market. If you release from the from the SPR, that essentially is, you know, at the peak last year, they were releasing like one 1.2 million barrels a day, which is about the same as Oman produces, which is an OPEC plus member. Uh, That's a lot of crude, um, and that essentially manifests in supply demand balances as supply. If the Biden administration and and now we are beginning to see them begin to repurchase crude, far smaller volumes, far slower, but that manifests in the market as demand, Um, and I think it's. Because if you think about it, when people talked about it back in the day, um, you know, back when it was first happening, they're like, oh, this is going to be super bullish because inventories are going to fall. And that means that the market's really vulnerable. But at the same time, the same people will say, oh, but price is only weak because the SPR is selling. Which Both of those things can't be true at the same time. It's either bullish or it's bearish. And I think in this context, it is, an SPR sale is only bearish. And when you look at, you know, if you do the kind of relationship between prices and inventories, if you look at it on a commercial only basis, it lines up really nicely. If you do it on a total inclusive SPR basis, well, it lines up really nicely right up until the point the SPR does anything, which if you think about it from a statistical perspective, of course, it's going to line up nicely. If the SPR is not doing anything, it's just a level increase in that overall inventory level. There's no change but if the change begins to happen and it goes counter to the direction of prices well that's a pretty strong hint that you are interpreting it wrong from the beginning
0: right and it's, it's kind of like the reverse repo facility but in the, in the real world and it's <laughs> inert it does not exist except when things go when it's in there. It's, it's not in the system, just when it's in there. Okay. Uh, so uh, Rory, great to have you here. People can find you on Twitter at Rory underscore Johnson. And of course, your great sub stack at commoditycontext.com. Final question for you, Rory, it, it seems uh, you use the word glide that oil prices, you are cautiously bullish, you know, that 80, $90, and it will inch up, but you, you know, not nothing uh, um, super bullish uh, in, in either direction. And, and so there will be no large moves in either direction that sounds like just your your short-term view what's to, what would have to happen for there to be a large move in either direction and uh more importantly this is my this is my real question do you it, when there is a large move because we all know there is there is going to be a large move sometime in the future always which way is it going to be up or down at uh, this particular moment
1: i think that the four prices to go really like if prices were to collapse, it would likely because the rest of the global macro backdrop is collapsing. And I think it's not rocket science. If we enter a protracted recession, uh, then yeah, risk assets like oil are not going to do well. Uh, we're already seeing anemic demand growth and uh, and a protracted economic crisis would only make that worse. And I think given the fact that we're already so low on demand, I think a, a, a more serious economic contraction could actually push, push us into net actual kind of absolute reduction which I was saying earlier doesn't typically happen uh, but I think that would be bearish the other thing that would be very bearish is if Saudi gets fed up of this kind of general support of the market and we pull a you know you know second coming of the 1980s and they flood the market to basically push everyone out and kind of you know reassert you know market share control that would be horrifically bearish I think in many cases actually on a fundamental basis more bearish, than a than a recession, uh, just because of the actual Like the, I mean, again, they're they're withholding two million barrels of crude right now. That's a 2, million, 2 million barrels a day. That's a lot of oil. Um, for there to be, I think. That said, I, I was saying I'm cautiously bullish right now, I think if things remain as they are, the Saudis kind of continue to kind of put their pressure, put their foot on the pressure, um, and they withhold barrels. We do see general kind of sideways to maybe mildly down Russian supply. Uh, The global economy reaccelerates. I think that's how we get back into that uh, kind of what I would consider my base case of back into that, you know, mid to high 80s would be my expectation of Brent. So as of right now, we're at 79. I would say my current view is we're probably going to, you know, in the second half of the year, push back up into the mid 80s uh, and I think trend
0: there until something else kind of catalyzes of movement higher or lower. So you described two cases where the price of oil could really collapse. You didn't describe any cases where it could surge higher. Was, is that, do you think that uh, a crash, even though a ca- crash is not your base case, do you think a crash is more likely than a, you know, oil to 150, 200? Yes, I would. Yeah, I,
1: I would say that a a mega bear case is more likely right now than a mega bull case. Because I think, again, we would need to create, we would need to recreate the conditions of the beginning of 2022 to actually have a mega bull case. Now, what could cause it? Let's just randomly spitball for a second. Well, if let's say say the United States, one thing we didn't actually talk about was the increased supply of Iranian and Venezuelan barrels to the market, because one of the things that, you know, while the United States and the White House can't directly control the production capacity and production intention of the US shale patch, particularly given the fact that Texas doesn't always seem to love Washington, um, just to put it mildly. Uh, I think the, um, what, it can, what the White House can do more or less unilaterally is ease up its, um, its you know, strenuousness with which it is enforcing sanctions against Venezuela and Iran, and that does seem to be the case. Now, if you had something, let's say there was a major political sea change and you had a lot of pressure on the White House to, to clamp back down on Venezuelan and Iranian barrels, that could probably, that could probably take something like you know, upwards of a million barrels a day off the market again. Combine that with, let's say, you know, there are a lot of pushback on, well, Russian barrels are still getting to the market. Um, that's part of the US plan to date. But if that changes and they begin, let's say they materially increase the price cap, or or, or sorry, materially lower the price cap or increase enforcement of the price cap, that could constrain. But at this stage, it's we're in this position where. Most of the big upside moves would be policy choices rather than the inevitable consequence of a current trend, whereas I think the inevitable consequences of current trends would be a gradual grind higher, whereas I think the downside is going to be these kind of you know tail risky kind of economic calamity side and I think while that doesn't that's not a base case, I think it's more likely than the White House deciding to you know purposely drive the price of oil to 150 dollars a barrel into an election year (laughs) right and i think particularly going into an election year and everything else so i think all else equal it seems that my base case is mildly higher but i think that the tails are more likely on the bearish side than they are on the bullish
0: side got it rory thanks so much for joining us sharing your insights and thanks everyone for watching thanks for having me Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.